0: Hi everyone, Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Judging Freedom. Today is Tuesday, November 28th, 2023. Matthew Ho is our guest today. We will talk to him about does diplomacy really work? Does it work in times of vengeance and hatred? But first. Hi everyone, Judge Andrew Napolitano here for Lear Capital. You all know that I am a paid spokesperson for Lear Capital because it's the right thing to do, because the government is regulating too much and printing too much money and reducing the value of everything you earn and everything you own. And the best hedge against this is gold and silver. That's what I've done. I know the folks at Lear, I trust the folks at Lear, I've worked with the folks at Lear, and I use their advice when it comes to my investing in gold and silver, you should do the same. Call them at 800-511-4620 or go to learjudgenap.com. You'll have a very nice conversation with a very knowledgeable person. who will send you literature to read, which you can review with your spouse and your financial advisor, and then you can call them back and decide what you want to do. Why LEAR? LEAR has 25 years experience and thousands of five-star reviews and a 24-hour risk-free guarantee. And when you have this conversation with the Lear representative, you'll find out if you can qualify for a $15,000 gold bonus. So call Lear now, 800-511-4620 or learjudgenap.com. Matt, welcome back to the program. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, As always, it's always a pleasure, my friend. I want to talk to you about using the levers of Diplomacy as opposed to uh, the levers of violence. But before we do, just a couple of basics. Um, Did 1,400 Israelis really die on October 7th? And why did the war go on? Why did that initial foray go on for seven hours? And did the IDF actually kill some Israelis that it thought or feared might be taken hostage?
1: So the number is uh, and good to see you, judge. Uh, I hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, thanks for having me back on. Uh, the number is 1200. It was revised down from 1400 to 1200 and really no explanation given other than I think in the assumptions that those 200 uh, were actually Hamas fighters, but they were so disfigured, so badly uh, damaged by the fighting, if you will, that it was very difficult to identify them as Hamas fighters until weeks later. Uh, so the numbers 1,200 of that, about uh, 400 or so were Israeli military, and that seemed to have been the original thrust of the Hamas attack on October 7th was to go after military targets, one as part of this ongoing war between Hamas and Israel. It didn't be- begin on October 7th, but goes back decades, of course. Uh, and then, of course, but what happens is that as we're tend- as we're seeming to understand better now with time, what seemed to have occurred is that in addition to that uh, initial Hamas attack on the military targets, undoubtedly there are probably some civilian targets as well, streams and and, and just uh, unorganized masses of uh, Gazans flooded out of Gaza. The fence was down. This was their opportunity to leave. Many of them, I think, went out to see what was out there because they'd never been outside of Gaza before. And others went out to take revenge because uh, they have been kept in that open-air concentration camp for decades, they had had family, friends, neighbors killed by Israel, whether it be uh, during uh, uh, the, the the number, the numerous uh, air wars and ground wars launched by Israel against Gaza, or even during the non peaceful Great March of Return, where two hundred Israelis were killed and thousands were, were shot. Um, you know, I mean, so what you saw was this butchery that took place. Some of it had a strategic purpose. Some of it was just. Revenge. It was vengeance. It was bloodlust. It was what would you expect if you caged two million people for decades? What would you expect would happen? And uh, you know, undoubtedly, the Israeli army killed some Israeli civilians. It was bound to happen. Uh, you know that type of crossfire, that type of confusion, the the fog of war you hear about when people see the the gun camera footage from the Apache helicopters, or from the tank crews, and you see how hard it is to actually. Uh, you know, decipher what you're looking at to really get a good identification, what you're looking at. That's what the gunners are seeing. That's what the vehicle commanders or or, or the pilots are seeing, you know, so it's not like they have a better optic system than what we're seeing through their gun camera footage, you know, so you can kind of understand how hard it is for them to differentiate between civilians and, uh, and fighters and all that
0: confusion, you you know, innocent people were killed. Do you understand if there was intentional killing by the IDF, this sort of Hannibal strategy, right. as they call it, to kill people that they knew were in danger of becoming or had already become hostages. Right, and, and the Hannibal directive is is uh, uh, uh,
1: something the Israelis have had for a couple decades. Uh, it's named after the General Hannibal, who killed himself rather than being taken prisoner by the Romans. And the idea is that It is better to have dead Israelis than captured Israelis. And this particularly always seemed to pertain to the Israeli military. It's better to have a dead Israeli soldier than to have a captured Israeli soldier. And I don't think that that was initiated on October 7th. I mean, what occurred there in those seven hours for that type of decision to invoke a directive like that? I think that's too quick. I think what you saw was 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 the reality of combat. People get killed by people on their own side because it's messy, it's ugly. People are, are rushed, they're scared, they don't know all the circumstances. They can't right. see things clearly on and on and on. and that's how you end up with the Israeli army killing many Israeli civilians. Uh, it just it, you know, it, it's one of those things of warfare and just one of those one more reason to make warfare
0: not the instrument to be pursued. The um, uh, Hamas people, have about 200 uh, Israelis and a few Americans uh, uh, restrained, Uh, the Israelis have a few thousand Palestinians restrained. Why are the restrained uh, Israelis called hostages and the restrained Palestinians called prisoners? Well, this
1: goes into the propaganda that we've talked about so much, the, the, the language bias used, the, the language preferences, the, 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 the vocabulary utilized to make sure that one side uh, fits the narrative it's been assigned. So we talked about this a, a couple of weeks ago, right, where even when you're talking about the children that are killed, uh, whether they be Israeli or Palestinian, you know, it's something four or five times more often Israeli children are labeled by the U.S. media as innocent than Palestinian children are. And so you see this as well, where the Israeli hostages or prisoners or captives or detainees or whatever the right word is for them, uh, those children are described as children. Meanwhile, you'll see in the American press that the Palestinian captives, hostages, detainees, prisoners who are children are described as people under 19 years old or as minors. You know, they, So you see that purposeful use of language to strict to this kind of moral narrative, this this uh, uh, Manichaean uh, right description of this war of good versus evil of of you know and go it's and that goes right to what the Israeli Prime Minister will say, right to what American members of Congress will say, even the White House alludes to that this is a war of civilization against barbarism. These are not real people; these are animals. Their lives don't count on and on and on. And, you know, that's something that we have seen throughout, you know, particularly the warfare of this last century, all these American wars in the Muslim world, a dehumanization, an othering of our adversaries, of those that we are killing, trying to make it so that their lives don't count, that they don't matter as much, that they're not real people. And, you know, you see that with the language our media chooses to use. It just
0: backs that up. I want to segue into the uh, diplomacy. Uh, that's been going on. But in order to do so, I want to play this clip. It's set, uh, um, cut for Sonia. This is the uh, one of the ministers of Cutter, who was uh, involved in the actual negotiation and what his aspirations for the negotiations are. It's in English.
2: main focus right now is, and our hope, is to reach a sustainable truth that would lead to further negotiations and eventually to an end to to this iteration of violence, to to this war. And uh, we have always said that we need the push of the whole international community to make sure that uh, that happens. However, we are working with what we have. And what we have right now is a provision to the agreement that allows us to extend days as long as Hamas is able to uh, guarantee the release of at least 10 hostages uh, from uh, from their side. There have been some uh, minimal breaches. Which uh, which have been noted by uh, by both uh, parties, but they did not uh, harm the essence of the agreement, and the agreement is still uh, ongoing. We are monitoring, of course, everything on the ground. However, we don't monitor; uh, we don't have anybody on the ground in Gaza, and therefore we uh, rely on the reports uh, coming from uh, the ground and coming from both parties. And our job as mediator is to get that information across and to resolve these issues between the two parties before they escalate. And we have succeeded in doing that in the past four days, and we hope to continue.
1: Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder.
0: The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from
1: a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at Meta.com slash Metaverse Impact.
2: As you write your life story, you're far
0: from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. It sounds to me as though uh, the, the aspiration of a cutter and the, the folks that this gentleman works for and works with uh, is a sustainable truce, not just a three or four day one for the uh, for the exchange of hostages and prisoners. What do you think? Yeah, I ho- hope to God that's the
1: case. I mean, we have all been witnessing and of course our witnessing is nothing compared to the suffering. Right. But we've right. all been witnessing every day for, seven weeks now, videos and photos from Gaza that we wish we had never seen. And if this begins again on Thursday, uh, this killing, this, 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 the, these massacres, this, you know, this bombardment, um, we're going to see those videos and uh, photos again. So the human side of this, of course, calls out, you know, stop. But there's also, too, the point he makes at the end there, the escalation when you have escalation, when you do not have these truces, when you do not have these, these uh, uh, events that are meant for people to gain control of the circumstances, so that uh, actual negotiations, so that some type of process can begin to end, not just end hostilities, but find a solution to whatever the grievances and the problems and the issues were. Well, as when every when all you have is just escalation on top of escalation response upon top of response. You know, what you're going to get to at some point is cataclysmic. And, you know, Mm -hmm. this is not just pertaining to, say, say Gaza and and Israel. But if people seen what's happening, say, in, in Korea right now where the North Koreans have put a satellite up in space, but then also, too, they have begun remilitarizing the border. And so, what you go back to the Trump presidency, and remember, Trump goes to the President, Trump goes to Korea. He meets with the North Korean leader uh, in the South Korea, North Korea. They, they, they signed an agreement in 2018 trying to demilitarize their border. I mean, this is a great thing. These are great steps. The North Koreans actually start taking apart some of their fortifications and weapon systems on the border. And then what happens? Well, we have to go back to our bellicose ways. This isn't good for our hegemony. This, uh, you know, on and on China, on and on Lockheed Martin, right? All those excuses, all those reasons, all those rationales come back, and we start to abandon that detente. And so what do you see? You see the South Koreans pull out of that agreement. You see the US start sending nuclear-armed submarines to Korea. And now the North Koreans have started to rebuild their fortifications on the on the border with now.
0: And it's worse. I don't want to get into Korea, but it's worse over there than before Trump's good uh, intentions. But right. But and, and,
1: and the point being is that these are principles. These are things right. that we see throughout right. warfare. Right. That when you are allowed the opportunity to talk, when you're allowed the opportunity to negotiate. Then these types of things are possible when the fighting is occurring, when all there is escalation, when all you do is provide the other side with a reason to respond, a necessity to respond. When all you do is give their hardliners, their people who are the warmongers, those who most profit from the war, whenever you give. So like their John Bolton's or Lindsey Graham's, right, or or Richard (laughs) Blumenthal's reason, right, right? you know, back up what they're saying, give them uh, give them evidence, if you will. Then what do you get out of that? But well, you see this in countless examples. Remember, we couldn't talk to the North Vietnamese, couldn't talk. Ronald Reagan could not talk to the Soviet Union. We couldn't talk to the Iraq insurgency. We couldn't talk to the Taliban. All that was disproved by talking to them and ending those conflicts or, in a say, case case, the Soviet Union, having massive arms control agreements. All right, What so
0: typically talks- happens during a truce? Do both sides regroup and get ready to move in for the kill as soon as the clock Midnight, and is that what's happening now? Yeah, very often. I mean, very often that will occur. And, and,
1: you know, and that that's just that's part of it. Is both sides have that opportunity to uh, to rest, refit, regroup, uh, replenish, uh, what have you. But it also allows the opportunity for trust to be built. Because what you're trying to do as well is that by ensuring that there are no ceasefire infractions, that neither side is violating the truce, you are showing them, you're showing the other side, and you're, importantly, showing those hardliners, those warmongers on your side, that this can work, that this has a possibility of working, that these are people that we can talk to. So when you see this, when you see a success of the last four days, whereas the Qatari foreign, minister spokes- foreign ministry spokesperson did say there have been some minor infractions, Okay, minor infractions,
0: but overall (coughs) successful four days. Do you know if these negotiations were face to face, if Israeli leaders were in the same room with Hamas or if it was all done remotely through the Qatari people?
1: I I don't know. I I mean, Hamas certainly has their people in Qatar, the, 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 the senior leadership of Hamas. Uh, lives there. Uh, you also have uh, you know, the headquarters of of, of, of U.S. Central Command, uh, the Al-Adid uh, uh, Air Base. I mean, all those types of things. So the American presence is there. And, and certainly the Israelis can hop on a plane and go wherever. So the Mossad was involved. The CIA was involved. The Egyptians were involved. The Qataris were involved. Uh, whether or not they actually have face-to-face, I don't know. Were they in the same hotel and there was someone shuttling between conference rooms? Was it all done by telephone? There are reports that there was a breakdown in communications during the talks because of the silence in the communications from Gaza that uh, Yahya Simwar, who is the political leader of Hamas in Gaza, was quiet for a matter of days, possibly even longer, because he couldn't communicate, again, because the, right. they were under siege and the communications were blacked out, which is uh, you know, another argument you throw in here. If you don't allow the other side to talk, how can you ever achieve anything if you're not going to hear them out? We had this in Afghanistan, Judge, where it wasn't until about 2013, 2014, that the Taliban were allowed to have freedom of movement where they could designate somebody to get in a car and drive to Kabul without having the worry that a hellfire missile was going to explode through their rear window. So right. how can you claim that you're trying to have talks and how you're trying to uh, achieve a peaceful solution when you're going to kill anyone who raises their head from the other side? So we, I mean, that's just another uh, aspect of this that, that's worth talking about and demonstrating is that if you don't provide those opportunities, you don't provide those avenues, if you don't allow for, say, telephone conversations to come from Gaza, you can right. never uh, get to a point where you're going to have some type of peaceful resolution.
0: You and, and I and the folks that watch us regularly have been fascinated with the propaganda and the role of the media Uh, And there are certain things That you and I know happened And I get most of this from Colonel McGregor Our our friend and colleague That you don't see too much of in the media Uh, There has been a seizure uh, Of an Israeli vessel In the eastern Mediterranean There have been strikes In U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria What are we doing in Iraq and Syria There have been more than A thousand Hezbollah missiles Filed into northern uh, Israel The IDF has fired Sophisticated weaponry 25 miles uh, into Lebanon. There's a hot war going on in the West Bank. And there's a flotilla of a thousand Turkish Turkish commercial vessels making their way towards Israeli ports. You don't see any of that in the Wall Street Journal or the New York Times or the Washington Post.
1: And it's incredibly important. And if this was a, a movie or a Netflix TV series, right, this would be where the season ends. Right. Right. I mean, with all this, with everything that's that's occurring here, with all the possibilities that that the, the where where my God, what could the outcomes be if this does occur? And, you know, so, again, the need to talk, the need to negotiate, not to give the other side an excuse or a reason or a necessity, because all nations are bound. Political leaders are bound by the same necessities. They have their own domestic political pressures that they have to respond to. So the idea that Hamas would never have launched an October seventh style attack, based upon their constituency being kept in an open air concentration camp, is just you know the, the inability of not understanding that inevitability is the same as not understanding of of the, or how predictable the Israeli response was going to be to that attack, right? The political pressures that are on these leaders. And so whether it's, whether it's, it's say, the Houthi leadership in Yemen, whether it's the Iranian leadership, the Turkish leadership, the Egyptian leadership, they have to balance it, but they are under enormous domestic political pressure to prove to their people right. that they are not going to let
0: injustices or crimes occur without, because then they're weak, right? Talk to me about the Turks. Could a 1,000 Turkish commercial vessels, make their way uh, onto the shores of Gaza, attempting to deliver aid to the Gazans without the express authorization of President Erdogan. This is not Turkish military. These are Turkish commercial vessels. The last time this happened in 2014, the Israelis boarded the Turkish vessel, killed an American, killed 10 Turks, and paid $25 a pittance uh, in, in return for it. Right. Um, so so could the, a flotilla of this size, a thousand boats, have happened without Erdogan having orchestrated? And if he did orchestrate it, what's his game plan? Well, and certainly there were other,
1: after that 2014 flotillas, there have been other attempts to do flotillas to bring, and the idea behind that flotilla was to bring relief supplies to Gaza. So right. It's a it, people under siege, 2.3 million people living under the control of the Israeli army in terms of what is allowed in and out of Gaza. It's been like that for uh, since 2007 or so. Uh, so the idea of that was to do, be as a relief flotilla, provide assistance, provide aid. And 10 of them were murdered for trying to do that. And following that. The Various countries in the air in the region, Greece, Turkey, I believe Italy as well, possibly uh, wouldn't allow other flotillas to, to go forward. So, the fact that you have this, this armada basically, right, a, a, a fleet of, of these ships, if the reports are correct, uh, could not have happened without the Turkish government, without Erdogan saying yes. Now, the question will be will the Turkish navy? accompany them. I don't know if the Turkish aircraft, uh, Turkish Air Force has the reach and the range to provide cover all the way down there, but you have this possibility where what, how will the Israelis respond if uh, the ports in the northern part of Gaza have been destroyed. I'm not sure if the ports in the southern part have been destro- destroyed, but if these ships do show up, will the Israeli Navy and Air Force Sink them. Will they kill tens, hundreds, thousands of people? And what will the rest of the world do? I mean, the, the, the uh, consequences of this are staggering. And this is one of those things where, you know, reality is much greater than fiction many times, right? Because just as we sit here and talk about this and we contemplate it, the idea of it, the scale of it, the historical significance of it, and the fact that you have, if again, the reports are true, a thousand ships full of people ready to go to die, to help the Gazans, to aid the Gazans, to try and not just block the, uh, uh, Block the 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 uh, see or or stop the blockade, but to stop the ethnic cleansing that's occurring. You know this is really historic, and so if this is true and this does happen, how the Israelis respond? uh, My God, that would mean the difference between uh, this ethnic cleansing, this genocide, this slaughter coming to an end through negotiated solutions or. Uh, A regional war that, as we've talked about before, because of a domino effect of, uh, you know, Israel attacks one nation, which brings in another nation, which eventually brings in Russia, which brings in the United States. And you're in 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 something, you know, you're in World War Three.
0: Before uh, we go, um, when you are back here next Tuesday, will the uh, IDF have resumed its invasion and cleansing and eradication of Gazans uh, in the Gaza Strip, or will we still be in some sort of a temporary holding pattern? Your best instinct on this.
1: The Israelis are prepared to continue doing it. Uh, The defense minister, uh, Yoav Gallant said to the the army, basically be prepared for two more uh, months of fighting. Uh, Anytime Benjamin Netanyahu or other Israeli government officials speak about this, this truce, they, they, are forceful in saying how uh, temporary it is. And, you know, when, when, when Netanyahu first spoke about this truce last Wednesday, I believe it was, he began by saying the war is not ending. We're going to continue the war. I mean, so they've been adamant that they are not ending the war. So, the pressure on the Qataris, particularly to keep this thing going, is massive. I mean, this is, this is I mean, we can't be too hyperbolic in the sense of what the Qataris are doing right now to prevent the ethnic cleansing of a population. So, I think the pressure on, I think the Israelis, there are those within the Israeli government and, and Israeli military who are looking for any excuse to continue the fighting, to begin the, to to to, to begin again. This ethnic cleansing, because there are two sides to what Israel is trying to accomplish here. Uh, One is what they claim they want to eradicate Hamas, make Israel safer, et cetera, et cetera. Most people looking at this, many of us will say this is the exact wrong way to do that. You're only engendering support for the resistance. You're only building a more extreme uh, version of Hamas. But then the other side is that it's got nothing to do with that. This is about vengeance and about a continuation of an ethnic cleansing campaign that goes back 100 years. And so if that's where the Israelis really are, they have no real interest in uh, in continuing a truce, in continuing these negotiations because they want, you know, military victory, the victory of the ethnic cleansing, if you will. And perhaps by uh, allowing uh, these prisoner exchanges to occur, it has released, you know, has released some of the pressure off of the Israeli government that they were under because the Israeli government was particularly in the last week or two coming under very extreme pressure from its own population to do something about the hostages. So perhaps this is just enough of uh, an event to allow the Israeli government to say, hey, look, we did this. The pressure's off. Let's go back to our ethnic cleansing.
0: A a, uh, an unhappy but a brilliant and gifted uh, analysis, Matt. Thank you very much. Thanks for being with us. All the best. Thanks, Judge. Sure. And we'll see you uh, next week. Uh, coming up in just 30 minutes at three o'clock, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Karen Kortkowski on these similar issues. She has a little bit of a different take, but she ends up in the same place. Judge Napolitano. Oh, and we're above 241,000 uh, on the uh, subscriptions on our march to a quarter of a million by Christmas time. Thank you very much, Judge Napolitano, for judging freedom.